You'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, please. Romans chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 10 this morning. You know, back when I was in the 70s on radio, we used to play a song that was actually written by Hal David and Burt Backrack did the music. And it was a song that actually reached the highest in Billboard magazine by Sharon Meyer, who was better known as Jackie DeShannon. That was her performing name. And it was called What the World Needs Now is Love. And that particular song said, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. That's what the world needs. And in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, God basically says, that's what you owe the world. You need to show it love. So here's what the text says. Owe nothing to anyone except love one another. I want to point out the another is alas, which means another of the same kind. For he who loves his neighbor, and the word is not actually neighbor, it's heteros, which means another of a different kind. So you're challenged, love one another of the same kind. Love one another of a different kind, and whoever does that has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Now, some of the manuscripts include you shall not lie. We're going to go ahead and include that in our exposition this morning because Paul, in other passages, adds that to this list of things. You shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of those verses and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace and thank you for your patience. We read this text. We realize we have work to do. We need your Spirit's help and Spirit's power to do it. Lord, as a church and as individuals, we want to reflect your grace to each other, and we certainly want to reflect it to this world. And it's not easy. In fact, it's not natural. We need your supernatural enablement that transforms our minds and hearts and lives. We want to thank you for the privilege we have of living in this country, what great freedoms we enjoy on this Lord's Day. We want to thank you for our leaders. We pray for all branches of our government, the executive branch, the judicial branch, the legislative branch. We pray for all leaders at all levels, national, state, and local. Lord, they need your guidance. They need your direction. We pray that you grant that to them. May they sense the weight of responsibility that they have to make right decisions before you. And we pray that you would turn their minds to make decisions that will please you and be of benefit to thy people. We pray that you would save those in high positions of power, guide them, direct them, and then use them. We pray for the hurting of our flock, for those who've lost loved ones. We think of the Bowerman family and the Garland family who've lost siblings. We pray that you would grant comfort and peace and strength and grace that only you can give to them. And Lord, as we said, this chapter shows us we have work to do. We pray that you would help us do it. Help us accomplish it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's tough being a believer living in this world because we're trying to juggle two worlds. We're trying to live in that which is earthly, yet we're trying to display that which is heavenly. And that's not easy. It's not easy. 
What exactly does God expect us to do in regard to this world? Since we've been the recipients of that amazing grace package that he developed in the first 11 chapters of this incredible gospel book of Romans, what exactly is our responsibility to the world? What is it that we owe this world since we've been saved by the grace of God? We've been justified, declared righteous, imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, what do we owe this world? What amazes me to this point is we haven't seen one word about we owe the world evangelism. There's not been one word to this point about going door to door now that we have a theology down concerning the gospel. And that is what most places would try to communicate to you. Now that you know the gospel, you need to get out there and you need to really spread it. In fact, many churches make reaching the lost their primary responsibility. But then we're going through Romans and we're going, man, it doesn't seem like that's what God's after, after you've been justified. Seems like he's after us developing in light of the scriptures to become a God-honoring, God-glorifying Believer. So what is it that we owe this world? We owe this world an attempt to stamp out sin? Is that our goal? The evangelist Billy Sunday thought that. He attempted to stamp out alcohol. His famous line, which he's known for, is whiskey and beer are all right in their place, but their place is in hell. Of course, there's no verse in the Bible that says that. He made that up, but... He made prohibition his life's ambition. Should we do that? Should we pick out some sin and then just make it our ambition to try to stamp it out of existence? Should we owe this world pickets and protests? Should we put together a bunch of picket signs that are signs against things we think are wrong and go out on the street and stand there with those signs and protest as in some movement? Is that what we owe the world? Should we isolate ourselves, form some isolated Christian commune, wear strange clothing and have odd rituals like Amish people? I mean, should we do that? Why didn't Jesus do that? Why didn't the apostles do that? Why didn't those churches in the book of Revelation do that? If that's what we're supposed to do, how come it is they didn't do it? Frankly, that's not what we're supposed to do. It's true we are to expose things that are evil by not participating in those things ourselves. But what Paul wanted believers in Rome to understand is since you've experienced the saving grace of God, you have a responsibility to this world, you have a debt you owe to this world, and that debt is you are to be a demonstration of biblical love. This is a big challenge right here. You're to be a demonstration of biblical love. Paul's been developing the theology of responsibilities we have since we've experienced God's grace. He said we have the responsibility of God to be a living sacrifice, present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. We have a responsibility to our gift. We are to find our gift and use our gift. We have a responsibility to the church. We are to fervently serve the Lord. We have a responsibility to our enemies. Don't take vengeance on them. Leave vengeance to God. We have a responsibility to the government. Submit to it. And we have a responsibility to the world, and that is demonstrate biblical love. 
Now, when we go down through this, you don't have to respond to this. You can choose not to respond to it if you want. In fact, you could choose to have a life that's totally focused on you. That's your prerogative. And if you choose that life, you'll probably be a proud person and you'll probably reach some form of success. If you're focused on you, you may hit prosperity. You may have a lot of possessions, but you won't be happy. And you won't please God. And you won't fulfill God's will for your life or my life because the will of God is that we owe this world a great demonstration of love. We have a debt. That's what Paul says. You have a debt you owe to the world. It's not to hide out from it. It's not just to condemn it. It's to demonstrate biblical love to it. Now he starts that off in verse 8 by saying, Owe nothing to anyone except to love. Owe nothing anyone. It's strong negation. In other words, don't owe anything to anyone except to love other people. We live in a time when, frankly, it's just thrilling to pay off a debt. Happy moments. Pay off a mortgage. Pay off a car. Pay off a loan. Pay off a student loan. It's a great moment when you make that last payment, but God says, I have a debt I never want you to pay off. The debt that you are to have continually is you owe this world a demonstration of agape love. And as I pointed out, the first pronoun, another, means another of the same kind. Then the four of verse eight explains, but you're also to have this kind of agape love for a neighbor who may be another of a different kind. So as my people, you have a responsibility to demonstrate my kind of love to people in the church, people outside the church. And when people read that and they say, okay, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, that's so simple if you keep it theoretical. And if you keep it in the abstract, it's just so simple. Oh yeah, we are to love our neighbor. That's good. We see him, we wave to him. That's what it means. But you see, that's not really the classification of a neighbor. A neighbor is somebody who's in your life. A neighbor is somebody who's in your world. And when you get down to people that are really in your life and really in your world, this admonition to love them, man, it can get tough. It can get real tough. Now, in analyzing the way that he's going to spell out we are to demonstrate biblical love to people, inside the church, outside the church, is by six love demonstrations, and we're going to go through six love demonstrations that he mentions. And if you don't do this, you will miss out on opportunities that God could have used you, opportunities to minister. I mean, it's easy to be religious. Religious stuff is just so easy to be involved in. This kind of stuff gets right down to the heart of life to the real essence of life. And the first love demonstration is don't owe anybody anything. That's what he says in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now the assumption of that challenge, owe nothing to anyone, is God will give us enough to fulfill that. If we don't pay what we owe to a believer or an unbeliever, we're not demonstrating the love of God and we're not demonstrating the grace of God. Our reputation as a believer should be, we pay our bills. 
That's the reputation we should have. You know, those people who say they have a relationship with the Lord, they pay their bills. And we should make that a priority because the loving justice of paying our bills should precede the generosity and compassion of giving or spending on ourselves. We should really have a passion to demonstrate grace and love to this world by paying our bills. By the way, this verse is not teaching that it's wrong for a believer to borrow money. In fact, the concept of lending and borrowing is very biblical. What is not biblical is charging huge interest payments on the loan. But what Paul is telling God's people here is this seems so simple, but you actually demonstrate that you love the world And you actually demonstrate the grace of God when you pay what you owe to believers and unbelievers. You fulfill your payment terms. In other words, pay your bills. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Godly people who demonstrate love are very passionate, very concerned about paying their bills. They do not want to be on some debt collection list. According to Matthew 5.42, lending is a demonstration of grace. In fact, Jesus taught, give to him who asks you. Give to him. Don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So lending and borrowing, that's all part of life. If you have it, you lend it. Even Jesus borrowed a boy's lunch. Jesus borrowed a man's donkey. So the Bible is not some protest movement against capitalistic gain or financing. Now the immediate context of all of this is hoarding tax money that was owed to the Roman government. The Jewish leaders were teaching the people, don't give to them. Don't pay your taxes, only give it to God. And word was spreading among Christians that they were only to give their money to God and don't pay their taxes. And Paul said, hey, wait a minute, you pay what you owe. Pay your bills. Pay what you borrowed. And if you are a person who's living in debt beyond your means, you not only have a financial problem, you have a spiritual one. Because you don't want to fall into that category. So what Paul says is one of the ways you show fellow believers and neighbors that you love them is by you pay your bills. You don't live beyond your means. You know, when we decided to build this new sanctuary, we didn't have $2.8 million in the bank. That's what this costs, almost $3 million to do this. We started a building fund. We prayed. Man, we bathed this thing in prayer. That building fund got up to over $800,000 in it. The board carefully did research. We have some real skilled businessmen and men with good business minds did their homework and research, and the congregation voted to build this. And we carefully counted the cost. We determined what we could pay a month. Is it feasible? We determined it was. We didn't hawk for money. We don't beg for money. We didn't make faith promises. We just analyzed what God had supplied for the church, and we decided we can move forward with this. A bank came, and they assessed what it would cost, and they gave us a loan for 30 years. Well, we started making payments on that. Then more money came in, so we put extra money on the payments. Then we thought, well, you know what? We'll refinance this. Let's take it from 30 years down to 15 years. So we refinanced it, and we 
paid on that. And money kept coming in. We put extra on the principle of that. We made those payments. And in seven years, by the grace of God, we're debt free. Totally paid off. We have a reputation in this community. We have an unbelievable reputation in Huntington Bank. I mean, they would lend us, we could put up a swimming pool out there, and they'd do it. And not only did we pay off the loan, but we made a statement to the banking world. Man, those people over there, when they say they're going to pay something, they pay it. They pay what they owe, and they pay it on time. That is demonstrating God's grace and God's love. And frankly, we're living in a world, we're living in a country that doesn't function like this in many ways. Our nation is so far in debt, I don't know if we'll ever get out of it. The federal debt is $32 trillion. There's 331 million people living in the United States to pay off the national debt. Each person of this country would need to pay $97,000 right now to get out of that debt. If we were to pay $1 billion a day starting right now, it would take 87 years to pay off the national debt of $32 trillion. Now, that is not making a Christian statement to the world that we're in debt to... Pay off your bills, though, is not something we can control when it comes to the government, but we can control it when it comes to us, who know the Lord. We live in a world that loves debt. It thrives on debt. People borrow to buy TVs, computers, stereos, appliances, ATVs, clothes, and dining. They'll pull out a charge card, and they'll charge it. There's nothing wrong if you can pay for it. Nothing wrong with that at all. But something is real wrong if you can't pay. And what Paul says is our responsibility as believers is to show each other and show the world that we pay our bills, owe nothing to anyone. And just by way of illustration, I want to make an interjection about waiters and waitresses in restaurants. If we go out to eat in a restaurant and that person is waiting on us to take care of us, we owe them a good tip. They hardly make anything per hour. They're depending on those tips to survive. I'll never forget something Dr. John Wolverd said. I've never forgotten it. He used to say, be generous with God's people and God will always be generous with you. So when you go out to dinner and you leave a restaurant, you don't want them saying, boy, those people are misers, penny pitchers, cheapskates, skin flints, tight wads. When we leave a place like a restaurant, that waiter or waitress would say, you know, those are generous people. What you don't realize when you do that is you're displaying the grace and love of God to a world to which we owe love. So how do we show the world love? Pay your bills. That demonstrates love. Very practical stuff here. Secondly, don't commit adultery. Verse 9, for this, you shall not commit adultery. I'll tell you what, many a reputation of a church, many a reputation of people in the church has been hurt by this 
broken, violated command right here. And I've seen it in both husbands and wives in the context of the church. It wrecks things. This kind of thing causes suspicion and insecurity that some people, quite frankly, hardly ever get over. There is no way that any believer should ever be fooling around with another person's mate, sexually speaking. No way. We demonstrate love for each other. We demonstrate love to this world when we stay away from adultery. And that's exactly what Paul had in mind here. Paul says the way we love each other, the way we love the world, is not by getting sexually involved with somebody else's mate. And quite honestly, biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a love affair with someone else's mate. It's an anti-love affair. It's an adulterous affair. It's an immoral affair. We owe each other, in grace, a demonstration of grace and love that says we don't get involved in adultery. Now, you would think this would be no threat to believers in church. You would think everybody that's actively involved in a church would stay clear of this, but apparently it was a threat. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, apparently this was a problem, and Paul warned that God is an avenger of those that get involved in this kind of thing. Now, it's possible that we would have some secret adulterer here in this sanctuary or watching live stream. I think it's possible, but I doubt the majority of people here are in this church, and even those that are listening to this ministry that's focused on the Word of God would be involved in this. I think the major adultery issue for believers is the one that Jesus referred to when he called it mental adultery, look on somebody else's mate and lust after them. There can be in the church creepy people. And these people can look at somebody else's mate in a creepy way. That's wrong. That's not demonstrating love. That's not demonstrating grace. We have a debt we owe to each other, and the debt we owe to each other is not to commit adultery with our body or our mind. And when you're demonstrating the grace of God and the love of God, you're demonstrating to the world a great demonstration of that reality. I hope you've taken the challenge. Man, we're coming up on October. I hope some of you have made it. One year, not put one unclean thing before your eyes. Back in the mid-80s, I was sitting in O'Hare Airport in Chicago, waiting to catch a flight to Grand Rapids. I'd been in Minneapolis. I had to call in the B. Dalton bookstores, which the headquarters was Minneapolis, the Billy Graham bookstore, which was downtown Minneapolis, and then all the Christian bookstores in the surrounding area. And I caught a flight from Minneapolis to O'Hare, and I was in the terminal area waiting for the flight to Grand Rapids, and I noticed the guys sitting across from me were all looking at something apparently behind me. And the thing that they were looking at came and sat right now next to me. Lovely lady. No denying that. Kind of lady that turns heads. And I'm sure that for most of them, they're not looking at her thinking, well, I wonder if she knows Jesus Christ. That's what I thought. In fact, I thought that's probably why God has their setting here. So I struck up a conversation with her. She was traveling back to Grand Rapids to meet her boyfriend, so I asked her if she was happy and she had a fulfilled life. She said, no, not really. I said, let me tell you what happened to me. 
So I told her what happened to me in 1976. I told her about Jesus Christ and what he'd done in my life and how we had a wonderful life. Then I told her that Jesus Christ had done that for her. She, who lived in Grand Rapids, that's unbelievable, but she lived in Grand Rapids. She said, I'd never heard this before. Well, I actually had another Bible in my briefcase, so I wrote my name and Mary's name and her phone number down. I gave it to her. I said, you need to invite Jesus Christ into your life, and your life will have meaning and joy. Now, she was seated a few rows in front of me on the flight, but I noticed that she was reading that Bible from Chicago to Grand Rapids. Mary picked me up, and we watched her get in a car and drive away. The point of the story. Girl was lovely to look at, and if you looked at her, you saw that. But if that's all you saw, you missed it. You see, because she had a need, and the best way to demonstrate biblical grace and love for the need is not just look, it's to share truth. See, when you get caught up in not doing these things that are commanded here, you miss these opportunities. And Paul says one of the ways that you can really display the grace of God is that you keep a handle on your mind. You keep a handle on what you're doing with your body. You stay away from things that are adulterous. You'll be effective for me. Then he ups the ante a little further when he says, and don't murder. You shall not murder. We demonstrate biblical love to others when we don't murder them or kill them, and this may be done two ways. You can murder someone physically, or you can murder them verbally. When we love the way God wants us to love, we don't do either. Now, this is not some diatribe against protecting yourself or your family if you need to use lethal force. It's not talking about that, and it doesn't mean that one should not serve in the military because of some religious pacifism, what this was talking about is you don't commit murder. You don't commit homicide. Murder is the most anti-God act of pride that anybody can commit. Because to murder someone, you've exalted yourself to a level of playing God in your own mind to determine this is the moment their life is going to end. Back in Paul's day, it was easier to get away with murder than it is today because they didn't have all the forensic things that we have today. But the point is, whether it's in Paul's day or our day, is murder is evil and you don't want to do it. And then old James, James, he takes that to a new level in James chapter 4. He says, you know, you can murder someone more than just physically killing them. You can use your mouth. You can use your speech, and you can commit murder. In fact, Dr. McGee said it's much easier to kill someone with speech rather than with a gun. The more you love right, you'll watch your mouth. The more you're interested in demonstrating God's love and God's grace to the world, you're not going to be using your speech to murder people. We owe each other that. We have a debt we owe each other. We owe each other a demonstration of love that will not kill someone physically, morally, or verbally. We watched a program last week of a poor woman 
who is raising her sons as a single mom who was killed 38 years ago last year. Somebody crept into her bedroom window and killed her and appeared to get away with it for 38 years. Then this incredible woman who has all of this mentality of genetic study, they had a little DNA at that crime scene 38 years ago. And she got involved in tracking down genetics, and she tracked that down to the point that she narrowed it down to a family from which it came, and they eventually caught the guy. They caught the guy 38 years later. He had murdered this poor woman. Now, some of you may think it's great sport to go out of here and just verbally butcher your brother or sister in Christ. You say horrible things about him, and you may think, I'm getting away with it. I've been getting away with it for years. I pop off my mouth. I say what I want. Nobody seems to hold me accountable. I'm getting scot-free away with it. God says, oh no. In fact, you'll see next chapter, you have a Bema Seat judgment coming. And with a Bema Seat judgment coming, you don't want to be using your mouth to kill your brother and sister in Christ or kill anyone else with your verbiage. So what the Apostle Paul says is here, don't commit murder. Don't do that. There are some people, every time they open their mouths, they say something negative. It's against a brother or sister. You've murdered them. Do you understand that? You've murdered them. You get on the phone, you get on the internet, you get on whatever, and you're typing the stuff, and you're talking about them. You're killing them. And Paul said, you don't want that on your record. So what Paul says is, when you don't do that, you become a great display of love. This is God's love. God's grace. You don't murder. The fourth thing on the list is you don't steal either. Verse 9 says you shall not steal. The point here is when you love one another right, and when we love this world right, we won't steal. We won't take something from them that we don't pay for. We're not going to be like some thief who sneaks into some place and steals. And Paul was not just speaking here about robbing a bank. He's, he's setting forth a key principle. When we love and demonstrate the grace of God to the world and we love the world, we don't take what they have. We don't steal from them. We're not going to steal their money. We're not going to steal their possessions. We're not going to steal their time. You know, it's estimated that one in ten churches have money embezzled through stealing. I'm sure that the majority of these thieves would tell the people at the church, we love you. That's deranged. How can you love a group of people at church and steal from them? It's estimated in the United States businesses, $50 billion a year is stolen by internal theft every year. We're living in a day in which there's so much stealing that stores just consider it part of doing business. In some cases, they won't even stop the shoplifters. I talked to one retailer not long ago and said, hey, if you see a shoplifter, why don't you just stop them? Why don't you hold them until the police get there? No, no, we can't do that. They might get upset and hurt someone. We let them go. What kind of insanity is that? Well, at least we as Christians can march to the beat of a different drum. We can show this world, look, we don't steal from you. We don't rob you. We'll pay what we owe. When we purchase something, we'll pay for it. We're not going to steal it. 
So Paul says when you do that, when you live your life that way, you're actually displaying the love of God. The fifth demonstration of love is we don't lie. Now this one doesn't show up in this list, but it does in some of the other manuscripts. You don't bear false witness, but I'm going to include it because Paul includes it in other lists where these are similar lists. One of the things that God's people will not do when they love their brothers right and sisters right is they will not lie to them. I mean, certainly if you love someone properly, you're not going to lie to them. You'll tell them the truth. If you love someone either in the family of God or outside the family of God, you're not going to make up lies about them. Your yes will be yes, your no will be no. Remember, this biblical love is always in the context of truth. You can't have something classified as biblical love that's in the context of bearing false witness. I have seen people tell bold-faced lies in the church. In the church. Sometimes it's confronted, sometimes it isn't. You can always leave it to God. But what Paul says is, when you're going to display God's love to the world, that you've experienced this justifying grace, don't lie to people. Tell them the truth. And then he says, don't covet either. And he says, and you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Jealousy is one of the most evil, diabolical sins in the scriptures. And jealousy and covetousness go hand in hand. Jealousy and covetousness basically says, I don't like the fact that you have it and I don't. It just consumes people. It's evil stuff. And this word covet means you have a passionate longing or desire for something we do not have. In fact, it's coveting that leads to charging and borrowing and not paying back things on time. I mean, people see somebody else got it. Well, I got to have that too. So I'm going to go out and get that too. When in fact, God may not have given that to them. You know, we should be happy for what God gives our brothers and sisters in the Lord. If God does something good for them and blesses them, we should be saying, praise God. We shouldn't be coveting it. We should be happy with what God's given to us. Thank him for what he's given to us. We shouldn't be coveting it. And Paul says, when you live your life, and you live your life with people in the church and outside the church, and you follow through on this, you pay your bills, you don't commit adultery, you don't murder them, you don't steal, you don't covet what they have, what you're doing is you're demonstrating the love of God for this world, and you're demonstrating the kind of love God wants you to demonstrate. In other words, Paul says, you love people right when you don't covet what they have. I don't care if it's coveting their job, their income, their house, their lifestyle, their cars, their possessions, their bank account, their mate, or their looks. The thing that coveting will do is cause you not to think about them right. You start coveting things, and it'll prevent you from having any ministry to people. Because you'll be so consumed with green-eyed jealousy, you'll become insensitive to them, you won't see what their needs are, you'll be jealous and envious, and you'll never be effective for Jesus Christ. 
This is what we owe the world. Not pickets and protests. Not attempts to stamp out sin. This is what we owe the world. A demonstration of biblical love. In his book, The History of Christianity, Michael Smith discussed the age of asceticism, the monks who practiced it. He said, none of the earliest Christians appears to have lived as a hermit or in an ascetic community. Individuals were noted for their rigor of life and devotion to God. That's what we want. We want to leave this world having made a mark. Those people had a rigor for life and they had a devotion to God. That's the way to live it. Because when we live our lives this way, we're basically saying to the world and to each other, I'm demonstrating God's grace. I'm demonstrating God's love. And Paul says, that is what you owe this world. May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, right now in this moment, you could settle that, and I would. You'll become the most fulfilled person. You'll become the most joyous person you could ever become by having Christ in your life. Without him, whatever you achieve, whatever you have, something will be lacking. So right now, just invite him to come in and take over your life. Father, we thank you for the precious word of God. We need work. We need work here, Lord. and We need to take these passages and apply them to our own individual lives. This is a passage of scripture that this world needs to see. I pray that we would be people that would reflect this always. I pray that this church would be known for this. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to work in our individual lives and collective life as a church, that when the world sees it, they'll say, you know, those people there, they really practice what they preach. In Jesus' name, amen.